Welcome to Practical Christian Living. There are people among us that have a tendency to lean towards legalism, even lean towards the law, which I got to tell you, if you're one of those people that lean towards the law, you want to keep the law, and there's certain parts of it you think you should keep, whether it's the dietary law or the civil part, whatever it is, I don't understand you at all, okay? I don't want to be under the, the law at all. I want to be under grace. When Jesus came as a man to live on this earth, he brought a new covenant that no longer required man to try to live by the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. It no longer required ritual blood sacrifices. Jesus became the one and only sacrifice ever needed. With more on the new covenant and why it made the first one obsolete, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson with Hebrews chapter eight. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It is rich. The waters of your word run deep. It is a lamp and light unto our feet. It never fades or withers. It always accomplishes what you send it out to do. And it has been inspired and is profitable for us to study. We pray that you would take these truths here, apply them to our lives, cut these truths into our hearts that it might make a difference in the way that we live. And we thank you and pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is New and Improved. That is a marketing term, isn't it? When you hear new and improved, they're trying to get you to believe that whatever you have that is like that is obsolete. And you absolutely cannot live without the new and improved version. Now, I'm an Apple geek. I'm a you know, Mac guy. I got to have the latest iPhone that comes out and the latest iPad and the latest computer. And they've learned that there are people that are out there like me. So every six months, they come up with a new product, a new iPhone that's got a little larger screen or is a little bit faster or has some new feature that something else didn't have. And I will feel like I absolutely have to have it. It happened here recently. They came out with the iPad mini. Now, when the iPad came out, I started teaching from it immediately. I mean, I really want to save paper. I want to be good to the environment. So I got an iPad so I could use it for my notes. And by the way, I absolutely love it. However, they came out with the mini. And so I ordered the mini. OK, and it took me a little while to get it. That's what I, I teach from now. My notes are on it. And isn't it neat? I mean, it's just small. It's tiny. And I, I got it in the mail and I went back in my room and I sat it up and I, I brought it out to show my son and his girlfriend. They're sitting on the couch and I was like, hey, look at my new uh, mini. Check it out. Isn't it great? And Chris looked at it and he goes, um, isn't it just like your bigger one? I go, well, yeah, it's really not as good as the bigger one. The bigger one's got a brighter screen and it's a little faster, but this one's mini. It's like small and, and isn't that great? And, and, and they did not stop razzing me for at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours about my mini. In fact, several days later, his girlfriend made a statement. It's like your mini, huh? Uh, now, wait a minute. Now, they've learned how to market the new and improved. On the other end of the spectrum, I have a friend who is not older than me. You would think he's older than me because he doesn't like technology, but he's younger than me by about four years. And his cell phone, if he could figure out how to use a brick phone, he would do it. In fact, his cell phone, unless he's gotten a new one, I don't even remember how to use. It's so old that I look at it and go, I don't really remember how to use this thing. It's so long ago. We're going on a trip together. 
And so I asked him last week, why don't you go ahead and text me that information? And he goes, well, I don't know how to text. I said, come on. How could anybody today not know how to text? And he said, no, I really don't. I'll ask my wife and she'll let me get it sent out. So I told him, it's time. It's time to upgrade in your life. So somewhere between me having to have the new and improved every six months whenever they come out with it, and my buddy who never wants to buy another cell phone in his entire life is the reality that things do become obsolete. Is the reality that there is a time to buy a new car. There is a time to buy a new cell phone. It's time to buy a new car, not just because they put a fin on the next year's model and you go, ooh, I want that fin, but because there's a legitimate time. Well, that's this chapter. This chapter is telling us there is a legitimate reason to make sure that you move from the old covenant to the new covenant. The new is new and improved and the old is obsolete. That's the point. We pick it up and there's two different aspects taught in this chapter. The first has to do with the sanctuary, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a tent. In the Old Testament, Moses was told to build the tabernacle. They would take this sanctuary, this tent tabernacle, temple kind of a thing, and they would build it in the middle of the camp. Then they would build all of their tabernacles or tents facing the tabernacle of the Lord. And it put this type of God being the center in their lives. You and I should build everything in our lives with the doors of our lives facing the sanctuary of the Lord. That was the idea. That tabernacle was the place where sacrifices were first given. When they went into the land, no longer was it part of their camp, but they moved it to an area called Shiloh. And then when David came along, David purchased the threshing floor uh, up on top of Mount Moriah, which would later become the Temple Mount, and Solomon would build the temple, which would replace the tabernacle. It would be a copy in brick of what the tabernacle was in canvas, okay? So there was this tabernacle and the children of Israel were tempted to go from Jesus back to the tabernacle or back to the temple. Now, we don't have this temptation today. There are people among us that have a tendency to lean towards legalism, even lean towards the law, which I got to tell you, if you're one of those people that lean towards the law, you want to keep the law and there's certain parts of it you think you should keep, whether it's the dietary law or the civil part, whatever it is. I don't understand you at all, okay? I don't want to be under the law at all. I want to be under grace. I'm so thankful for God's grace and I want to be under the new covenant of grace. But could you imagine if there was still a temple? Could you imagine if in Jerusalem, the temple that Herod built, the one where Jesus turned over the tables, could you imagine if it still existed? Could you imagine the group of people that would lean towards legalism, that would tell us, you've got to go to Jerusalem, you've got to go to that temple? The only thing that remains of the temple today are the southern steps. You remember that Titus in 66, that's not 1966, by the way, but 66 AD, knocked down the temple to get the gold from it, burned it, knocked it down, and then pushed the bricks over the edge of the temple mount. And they fell some 30 or 40 feet down. Those bricks, by the way, have been excavated today. And if you take a trip to Jerusalem, you go to the southern end of the temple mount, and you go down below and you can walk among those very bricks. I have a picture of me standing on top of those bricks that were pushed off by Titus. And I got the picture and then somebody chased me off. Hey, you get off of there. True story. And I had to get off of them, but I got my picture on top of those <laughs> bricks that had been pushed off of the temple. So 
Could you imagine had the temple not been destroyed and is still there today, how many people today would say, we need to get back to the temple, we need to get back to those things? Well, that's the temptation they were dealing with. This was written in 64, 65. The temple isn't destroyed until 66. And so the temptation for these early Jewish Christians, you can imagine how it would be magnified if you were Jewish. So the temptation for these early Jewish believers was to go back to the temple. And so his first point in chapter 8 is the temple is a copy of the real in heaven. That which is in heaven is real. The temple here on earth is a copy. So why do you want to be going to the copy when you have access to the real one? Okay, so we pick that up in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. We have such a high priest. He had been talking about how Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The law was weak and it could only show you your sin, but it couldn't save you. The law was imperfect because it couldn't bring you to salvation, but Jesus can save you to the uttermost. And we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The earthly high priest didn't have a seat for them, not as far as I can tell, in the temple because their work was never done. They were forever trimming the candle. They were forever changing the showbread. They were forever burning new incense. They were forever making sacrifices for their own sins and making sacrifices for others. But our high priest that we have, he is seated at the right hand of majesty because it's finished. As he said upon the cross, it is finished. And the work of the sacrifice that he gave is done. And so then he says of this high priest seated on the throne of majesty in the heavens, verse two, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle. That word true could be translated real as well. The minister of the sanctuary of the real tabernacle, which the Lord built or erected and not man. So he's saying that the tabernacle that was built by Moses and by the, the men who built it with him was not the real tabernacle. It was not the true tabernacle. But up in heaven, there is a real tabernacle. There is a true one. And then it says in verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary for one also having something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Jesus would not be a priest here on earth because he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. But in heaven, he's of the order of Melchizedek. So he is a priest and he has to have something to offer. It says, since they are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Who these priests on earth that offer these gifts, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. He now says that these Levite priests who are working and serving in the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary here on earth are serving a copy, a shadow of the real thing. And so he's saying to them, why do you want to return to a, to a shadow? Why do you want to go back to a copy? In other words, just as Melchizedek was the precedent for the Levite priesthood, not the Levite priesthood being a, a precedent for Melchizedek, so the tabernacle Moses built had a precedent for it, the true, the real tabernacle in heaven. Now, I've used this analogy before, but here's the point that it's being made, so I want to use it again. 
He is saying, if this is a shadow and that is the reality, it's like if your wife were to go on a long trip and she returns and you run up to her and you fall on her shadow. I've missed you so much. I love you, shadow. And you get all excited about the shadow. And your wife would say, it's time for me to go on a, even a longer trip. Maybe a trip forever because something's wrong with my husband. Because no one would get more excited about the shadow than the real thing. The shadow is evidence that the real thing is there. You can learn some things from your wife, from the shadow. You might look at the shadow and go, ooh, put on a little weight. Ooh, you know, whatever. whatever. You might be able to learn something. Sorry. You might be able to learn something from the shadow. But if you really want to know, you look at the real. And so the point is well taken for us. Why return to the copy? Why go to the shadow? Again, we don't have that temptation. That's not the application for us because the temple's not there. But it was a temptation for them because the temple was still there. Don't go back to the shadow. Don't go back to the copy. He then goes on to say, the end of this verse, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So God gave him a pattern for the tabernacle that Moses was supposed to build because there was something in heaven he was copying that it was a shadow of. So when you and I get to Leviticus and we get to the end of Exodus, where he starts to break down the, the blueprints, the written blueprints for the tabernacle, I got to tell you, some of the most difficult Bible studies, I'm not saying least effective, I'm just saying some of the most difficult Bible studies that we can have are in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus because it gets into the temple is this big and that big and put it here and put this kind of curtain on it and that kind of wood and this kind of gold. And we, we study it and go, okay, I get it. And sometimes it seems like it's repeating it. It tells us how to build the right side. Then it tells us how to build the left side. It tells us exactly how you and I are, are supposed to do it over and over again. But when we learn that these things are a type of something in heaven, then we find there really is application. And it becomes a valuable study for us. A lot of repetition still, but it becomes a valuable study because these things were a pattern of that which is in heaven. In other words, the first five verses here are telling them there's a heavenly sanctuary. It is a better sanctuary because it is the real sanctuary. And the things here on earth are only a shadow and a type of that sanctuary. Don't give the real up for something that is a pattern and a type to return to them. He now moves to the second aspect of the chapter, which is the new covenant, the, the new and improved. Verse six, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on a better promise. The better covenant Jesus gave us. Jesus said on the night that he was arrested, when he gave the command for communion, he said, this is the cup of my blood and the new covenant which I give unto you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the new covenant was given to us by the blood of Jesus. And that new covenant supersedes the old covenant. We no longer need the old covenant of Moses because we now have the new covenant given to us by Jesus. And it's by a better promise. What was the promise of the old covenant? The promise in the Old Covenant was, if you will keep my laws and keep my statutes and do all the things that are here, then I will bless you and be with you and I will never forsake you if you keep them all. Here's the problem. 
They didn't keep them all. And so they found themselves discarded as a nation. We'll talk more about that in a minute because it's going to come up in the text. They found themselves discarded as a nation. Now, you and I don't live under that promise. If you will do all these things, then I will do all these. The promise that we live under is a better promise that if we get to know him, if we invite him in, if we are born again, there are certain things that will change in our lives. There are certain qualities of this new covenant. Now we pick it up in verse seven, for it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Had the first covenant been okay, had that law not have failed, there would be no reason to have a second covenant. If your iPad's working great, you don't need a mini. That's the idea. Now you might want a mini, you might end up getting a mini, but you didn't need it, okay? Your original iPad was fine. Well, that's what he's saying here. If the law had been faultless, if the first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need. It was truly obsolete. Verse eight, because finding fault with them, he said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Note that the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God, well, let's read on a little further. We'll come back to him discarding them. Verse nine. Not according to the covenant which I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. The promise that they had was if you do all of these things, then I'll do this for you, but if you don't do them, then I'm not going to do that for you. And so they were discarded. Now, when we think of the nation of Israel being discarded, that's kind of a scary thing. In fact, Romans chapter 9 talks about it. I'm going to kind of paraphrase what it says. See, this covenant, the new covenant even, was made with Israel. That Israel, what we're going to talk about with this new covenant being born again, was for Israel. But we, Gentiles, some of you here may be Jewish. In fact, we probably got some Jewish people who are here. You guys are a cultivated branch that has been discarded. And we Gentiles are a wild bunch. I mean, wild branch that has been attached to the cultivated vine. And we are now growing as that wild branch. But then, and you can read it, it does say this at the end of chapter nine. This is paraphrased, but here's what it says. But don't you wild branches get uppity. Don't you think that you're better than the cultivated branch? Because if God could put you on the vine and cultivate you being a wild branch, how much more can he reattach the cultivated branch? And then he says, and he will, for all of Israel will be saved. There is coming a day when as a nation, they will realize the Jewish people that they have rejected Jesus, their Messiah, and they will receive him and be part of the new covenant that you and I are a part of. When we consider the nation of Israel today, a couple of things. World War, well, the final World War, World War III or four or five or whatever it is, okay? Armageddon is going to be fought around Israel. The Bible tells us that. The final battle that will take place will take place around Armageddon, which is right outside of the Valley of Jezreel. There have been many battles fought in the Valley of Jezreel, and there'll be the final battle that will be fought there around Israel. The land mass of Israel, what is the smallest of all of the, the states in the United States? 
Rhode Island. You guys knew that. That's good. I wasn't sure, so I was asking you. That was a pull the crowd kind of a thing. Israel, the nation of Israel, is smaller than the state of Rhode Island. Did you know that? And yet it is where all of the controversy is at. Rhode Island, barely ever in the news. Israel, in the news all the time. Now, also, there are 7 billion people on planet Earth. Now, I don't know if somebody counted them all. But they approximate, right? That'd be a long count. In fact, I don't have enough time to count to 7 billion. 7 billion is such a big number. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth. There are 12 million Jewish people on planet Earth. That's a rather small number. Compared to 7 billion, there's 12 million. About 6 million of them live in Israel. About 4.5 live in the United States. And the rest, the 2.5 that's left, uh, the 3 that's left, are dispersed in different places around the world. That's a small group of people that this promise has been made. But now this promise is made to the cultivated branch, which is about 12 million people today. But there are 7 billion wild branches that could be cultivated in. We owe a debt to the Jewish people because we have been included in and are able to be born again. And again, I'm giving you a New Testament principle. The Bible tells us that we owe the Jewish people a debt because it was from them that the Messiah was brought out. Don't forget that Jesus was Jewish and it was from the seed of Abraham that all of the world has been blessed. So they have been disregarded right now, but they will be reattached one day and they will join us. Now, this new covenant, there are three aspects that are revealed here and he doesn't just bring them out of nowhere. He quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah said the day's coming when there will be a new covenant and here's what the new covenant will be like. And we learned three things about the new covenant. Number one, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The first thing that we're told about the new covenant is that we are going to have the laws written on our minds and on our hearts. They had the laws written on tablets. They had the laws written on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They had them written there where you and I, it's in our mind and in our hearts. In other words, Christian, if you are a real, genuine, born again Christian, part of the new covenant, then you know the right thing to do. You may be a brand new Christian. You may have just given your life to Christ and yet written in your mind and written upon your heart are the laws of God and you know the right thing to do. Now, a lot of Christians will justify their own sin. They know the right thing to do, but they have reasons why the wrong thing to do is the right thing to do for them. Okay? And I have heard every possible sin that is out there justified. I had a lady come to me one time and she justified adultery. There were two different couples in our church. The gal from one, the guy from the other had an affair. And they were planning on continuing to go to the church. And we went to them and told them, you guys can't come anymore. You can't come to the church. You just destroyed these two marriages. You're in an adulterous affair. And the girl told me this. It's okay that we've gotten together because this is true love. That's what she said. I said, what is this? The princess bride? No, wait a minute. That's not, I didn't say that. But really... She justified her own sin for true love, that adultery is okay because of true love. You know how long true love lasted? Two weeks. 
Two weeks and that little couple that had gotten together with true love were gone and done. She knew it was wrong to have that affair, even though she justified it in her mind. And you might be justifying some activity today, some action today. But if you were to really sincerely, if you were to really honestly look at, is this the right thing to do or is it the wrong thing to do? You already know. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.